Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. This week, this week on the nonprofit news feed, of course, brought to you by Whole Whale. Well, we have big announcements coming in the land of philanthropy, specifically Mackenzie Scott and small matter of a quarter billion dollars being <laughs> announced and open grant. So I'm excited to get into that. How you doing, Nick? I'm doing well, George, but I'm feeling excited because as you alluded to, Mackenzie Scott has announced an open call for no strings grant applications. Um, as part, of course, of her storied philanthropic uh, giving initiatives. So Scott is launching a $250 million open call for community focused on profits through her organization, Yield Giving. This as reported by the Associated Press and others. So the initiative aims to provide unrestricted, no strings attached, $1 million donations to 200 and 50 select nonprofits with operating budgets between one and five million. This marks the first time nonprofits can directly apply for funding from Scott, who has previously donated over 14 billion to 1,600 organizations. In partnership with the nonprofit Lever for Change, the open call process seeks to empower and strengthen communities often overlooked and reduce disparities in health, education, and economic outcomes. Um, applicants need to register by May 5th and submit their applications by June 12th. Um, and after peer review, up to a thousand finalists will be chosen and a public naming panel will select those lucky 250 winners um, with the announcement to come in early 2024. But George, this is kind of the moment that us who've been paying attention to Scott's philanthropy have been waiting for. Previously, nonprofits were kind of gifted through a very kind of opaque, a very thorough, but otherwise opaque process. This is the first time that organizations themselves can petition Scott um, for these grants that could be uh, really defining um, for these organizations. So what do we think of this move? I think this is really amazing because it is setting a standard a bit for no strings grants. And, and that means there's like don't fold yourself into a pretzel. Don't say you're going to like expand to, you know, Wyoming because that's a place I care about. It is do what you've been doing only with a million more dollars and relax. I think as a standard for philanthropy, that is a good thing by by not manipulating how the the work of the organization goes. I also like the very clear sort of 1 to 5 million dollar range. It it lets people sort of self-identify pretty quickly. I, I imagine there'll be some financial gymnastics that maybe occur, but there's not too much in, in the ways that you can hide that. You know, we're not saying like, oh, with in-kind, somebody promised this much. The truth is about 75% of the 1.8 million nonprofits out there, 75% are below that 1 million level. And so I think that is a, a big dividing line just for fun. I, I wanted to play a game of how many organizations fall into this uh, 
this band of 501c3 between one and five million. Nick, do you want to take a guess? Put you on the spot. You watching or listening at home, take a guess. How many people? Uh, sorry, organizations. How many organizations fall between one and five million? A hundred and twenty thousand. Okay. Well, you were you were in a in, in a ballpark. Uh, the answer is about fifty eight thousand, uh, based on a on a query I did in Cause IQ, which uh, I definitely trust as a as a data source. So with that fifty eight thousand, a funny way to look at this is that Mackenzie Scott could have also just written a check for forty three hundred dollars for all of them. But that really wouldn't change the time of day for for very many folks. So I, I think selecting this is um, is interesting in this way of giving one million is uh, is a lot to a one million dollar budget organization. So I do kind of question that, right? It's not standard to give a grant the size of the revenue of the organization. So I don't know if these are fixed one million or not, but that can be a bit risky, and the risk there is giving too much in a window of time, causing the nonprofit to increase their expense rates, for instance. So let's say, oh, we have twice as much money, let's double our staff. But then guess what? If you don't get another oversized grant in that period of time, well, guess what? You then have to fire people or remove services promised to certain stakeholders in the field. And that can actually cause more damage. So not without risk right? When you spray this much money on certain types of organizations. So like, I kind of have like one eye, uh, one eye on that. Uh, but yeah, what a great announcement. And I'm sure this sort of cattle call for, for applications is going to see maybe 55,000 <laughs> applications. I also, I also, I'm going to take someone slacking if they don't apply. <laughs> I mean, you seriously, like if you are a grant manager at one of these groups and you're like, I think we uh I think we might apply for this. Like you should. Um I also think the the use of chat GPT for grant writing is gonna go through the roof. So you're gonna get more grants written. Um I will say if you're on the, the Scott team, I've got a way of figuring out if those grants are actually written by GPT. Um and whether or not that is a discount or not is uh, you know, up to up to you. George, we'll be talking more about chat GPT and, and grant writing and how nonprofits should approach them. But yeah, I also agree with your um, analysis, your take that this is this is good news. Um, definitely something I'm curious about, right? Um, how many of these nonprofits are really able to maximize that million? I'm sure it's going to be put to very good use. Um, how many of them will maybe struggle under the weight or the burden of having that much money. Um, probably not a lot, but some may. Uh, it'd be interesting to see uh, kind of an outcomes-based analysis of the impact of this. Um, but yeah, great news all around. All right, I can take us into our next story. And this one is a unique one. This one comes from Wired. And the, the article is titled, A Nonprofit Wants Your DNA Data to Solve Crimes. So the story begins talking about the 2018 arrest of Joseph James D'Angelo, uh, infamously known as the Golden State Killer, which put genetic genealogy and criminology on the map because police investigators created a DNA profile of D'Angelo 
um, and uploaded it to a public genealogy database uh, to work their way backwards and figure out who this guy was. Um, however, a nonprofit um, called the DNA Justice Foundation um, wants to essentially create a nonprofit model uh, for the self-reporting of DNA, DNA data into a crime database um, so that should police need to investigate crimes, they can do so um, by accessing a database of people who have actively consented to the provision of that data, not compelling for-profit companies that have amassed insane amounts of DNA data um, to hand them over. So it's kind of an interesting model here. This is not something I've given a ton of time thinking about. Personally, I'm quite freaked out by major corporations having my DNA, and uh, I have not done the whole family tree thing, but I'm curious as to your take on this. Is this something nonprofits should be wading into? Um, are we hopeful? Are we skeptical that this initiative will actually solve the problems it purports to? Well, right now, the concern is that two private companies essentially own the largest databases of DNA. And so their motive is to increase shareholder value. That is what a company does. That is their reason for being. There are shareholders and they say, make more money, not make more impact, not do this ethically. Or if they are ethical, it is simply because they think the risk of being unethical might jeopardize the number one thing, which is increase shareholder value. So on the face of it, I think it is good that there might be a nonprofit with full disclosures and rules and regulations associated with nonprofits and the public benefit of them. In this case, you know, hoping to find, you know, as they, they call it, DNA justice for crime solving, uh, I think is a noble goal. I, I worry a little bit sometimes about the amount of wrongful incarceration in our country and how traditionally the legal system has been bent and broken uh, to, to harm brown and black people in this country. It is one of the saddest records, you know, in modern history. If you look at any manner of statistic, one hope is that maybe this begins to unravel some of this, uh, unravel some of this issue with wrongful incarceration, lack of data and DNA. And actually one of the things that like this, you know, killer being brought to justice being happened to be a white male is that it is actually early on has been shown to be finding a lot more, uh, let's just say, uh, diversity in the other direction for uh, criminals uh, that have otherwise gotten away with hard to solve uh, crimes. There are definite implications of misuse uh, of DNA here that definitely go beyond the scope of understanding, but there are some threads to pull inside of here. And I was just curious, and that's why I added this article in it. Yeah, this is this is an interesting one. I'm sure this is a whole, there are people who've thought about the ethics and implications of this a whole lot more than us. Um, but something to keep an eye on, for sure. Um, yeah, <laughs> nothing. I wish I had something smarter to say, but my brain can can only hold uh, but so many thoughts and hot takes. Um, but well, the, that... the interesting thing is like when one person decides, so here's one of the, the nuances, right? When I give permission to use my DNA, I'm actually opening up my edge of the family tree, which means if I have a you know cousin 
who is doing something nefarious, I have in some ways opened up the ability for the criminal justice system to implicate them in something, even though they may not have their DNA. They can actually get in that sort of range of who's involved. So there's a question too of when I hand over my DNA, which I have, I've done with 23andMe because, you know, I, I'm curious. That's just what I do. And I've actually also given the relevant data that could potentially triangulate members of my extended family in searches like these for DNA matches. No, it's, it's an interesting, interesting thing to think. I know some members of my family are like really gung ho about this. Um, and right, people get a lot of uh, benefit from Ancestry.com, um, 23andMe, tracking relatives. I have a friend who recently reconnected with biological parents. Um, and it's, a yeah, but with, with great data comes great responsibility. Um, and the, the justice, the criminal justice lens on this is, adds a lot more complexion to that. But interesting to see a nonprofit attempting to create kind of a more transparent approach to the problem. All right. Um, I am going to take us into our next story now. And unfortunately, this is a little bit of a sad one, but a nonprofit stepping up in a big way. This comes from WJTV. Um, and it talks about a nonprofit that is delivering coolers filled with food to forks to folks in Mississippi. Um, earlier in the week uh, and last week, there have been some deadly storms and tornadoes down south, um, particularly in the Mississippi Delta that have killed um, 26, 27 people. Last time I checked, um, the local nonprofit organization called Comeback Coolers was formed in 2016 when a group of Ocean Springs volunteers decided to pack coolers and take them to flood victims in Denham Springs, Louisiana. Since then, they've delivered 6,000 coolers to 10 states. Um, and right now, uh, their organization is working to get supplies to tornado victims in the Mississippi Delta. Um, of course, this is a, a devastating story of, of, of loss down south. And I think, I think, George, you and I both live on coasts um, and are uh, born and raised in, in New York. And um, I think sometimes uh, the South doesn't get necessarily the attention it deserves and our hearts go out to all those people um, down in Mississippi, um, Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, um, and all those those Delta states um, are 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 some of the poorest uh, contain some of the poorest communities in America and folks who are really really struggling and it's always devastating when natural disasters exacerbate that. Um, but it's great to see a nonprofit here stepping up to get help to folks in need. Yeah, I you know I don't know if this is going to be pulled toward extreme weather or not as part of a, a changing landscape. But this was like an L4 category tornado, which is absolutely absurd. Like these are not normal by any extent of the imagination, thrown off 115 plus miles per hour, doing about 60 miles of damage. And, you know, this is, this is something that you just don't, you don't see coming in the scale of destruction. 
um, if you're if you're in this area. So if you're if you're curious about this, and you want to start to learn more. It's like the T scale of of what's going on because I think you hear tornado and something happens in your mind. You think of the Twister movies from the '90s, or you think about something else. But like that's uh, that's a just an incredible swath of land destroyed by something very powerful. And I think what seems to be the potential risk is that there are more coming. And I don't know, you know, if you are a nonprofit responding to this, planning to respond to it, one of the things that you can probably predict is that there there will be more if these conditions continue. And so, you know, pr- the preparedness to not only respond, but frankly also with the digital campaigns, narratives, and content that will get you donations in that moment, uh, you know, be, be prepared for those uh, so that you can capitalize on these moments to help as many people as possible. Yes, the I know the White House has also uh, approved, uh, if I'm not mistaken, approved emergency federal funding for uh, this disaster. Yeah, George, I think that's an important part of it. Um, yeah, something we'll continue to keep an eye on. Um, I'm less versed in tornado season. I know that hurricane season is not yet here. I think tornadoes are a little bit more year-round, although there definitely is a peak. And um, I've lived, we have people, we have people at our company, George, who have had to uh, shelter in place because of some some crazy weather and natural events. This is just, we are a dispersed team across these United States. Um, and it seems like more and more there's severe weather um, that, causes us to be concerned for the people we care about. So um, we hope that those folks down in Mississippi um, recover okay and grieve the loss of life down there. Um, yeah. I can take us into our next story, though. And this one is a little more upbeat. Um, but we wanted to highlight this article from The New Humanitarian. If you listen to this podcast, you know they're a uh, favorite outlet of mine. They report on humanitarian news by folks who really know the sector very, very well. Absolutely fantastic journalism across the world. They operate on a nonprofit newsroom model. Um, but they wrote an article called Four Ways That Chat GPT Could Help Level the Humanitarian Playing Field. And I think that not only when it comes to humanitarian response can Chat GPT be helpful, but you can extrapolate these to the broad nonprofit industry as a whole. They talk about the way um, in which it can create content to amplify voices, right? You can prompt architect your way into kind of any content piece and and help spread the stories of um, uh, uh, services you're providing, programs you're offering, get the word out about uh, good work, um, help people understand complex situations around the world and the communities you're serving. Um, it talks about the way to navigate funding mazes and says that ChatGPT can actually do research when it comes to understanding complex uh, grant processes, uh, grant requirements. It could probably even draft grant proposals, um, minimize uh, legal and administrative costs. Uh, ChatGPT can answer legal questions. Again, probably shouldn't, uh, you know, take that with a grain of salt. ChatGPT is not a bar certified attorney, um, but it can give you a great head start. Um, It can help you identify local organizations. George, we're about to publish an article on this, but I think the TLDR is that AI is quickly becoming the best nonprofit assistant around. Um, 
all those kind of time-consuming research, writing, et cetera, content creation tasks are, have become and are going to become much more easier. And I think it's really incumbent upon nonprofits to understand what this technology can unlock for them while also understanding the ethical limitations of this technology and creating um, a use policy for how um, they see this technology helping their organization while also serving. Yeah, and I know, look, this is going to be a continual drumbeat, and this is two things happening at once. One, a massive fad, and two, a foundational, a foundational shift in the way that work is done in, um, in the day-to-day. Ignoring this simply because of the first part I said that it happens to be a fad, both of these things can be true, is an error. The truth is that members of your staff are already using ChatGPT to do parts of their work. There were 100 million people that signed up for this tool literally in the first month. It was the fastest growing product in software in human history. If you think your team isn't already using it, you probably don't understand how probabilities work. Number two is this is amazingly powerful if done in the right context with the right purpose. And Nick, I'll actually push back on you. You are right that ChatGPT can't really effectively answer legal questions, but GPT-4, the newest model released as of March 15th, was able to pass the uniform bar exam. So that means if you are a lawyer working for social impact, if you are dealing with legal questions, having this as a tool to write your first draft as though it were, you know, that, um, that paralegal working for you, you have a paralegal now that works for you, that you can pay next to nothing to, to do this type of work for contracts. And, and I think nonprofits should be first in line instead of last to know for this technology, I'm very happy to see the humanitarian, like we you know, are big fans, I think, of their work and their influence to sort of be embracing this with an open mind and be putting out content like this. I really like to see it. While in the same token, it is important to note that if you use these tools generically, you will get generic content. And there are downsides to that generic content which I can go on about. However, I, I would say check out some of our resources to that. And I, we're also very excited, Nick, you've, you've put together a GPT policy that your organization might want to put in place as you begin to play with these tools. So, you know, keep, keep listening and keep clicking the links that we're putting out there because we're trying to bring the social impact sector on this ride rather than Again, getting a late start on amazing technology, but used in the right way. Yeah, George, that's exactly it. And we'll be putting out this article at some point this week, but it includes a list of do's, a list of don'ts, and things to consider. And I think that when it comes to the, this technology's use in the workplace, um, when you look at it from a policy perspective, you can think about it almost in the way of social media hey, this is a way, this is a tool that's going to impact your work. Um, this is a new technology that is not only going to impact how you communicate with audiences, but can impact real-world events too. And I think that 
uh, social media has shaped our world. AI is going to shape our world. And I'm not like a tech evangelist, like, like I'm not the hyperbolic uh, Silicon Valley type. I truly do think that just with the speed that this is moving. With that comes understanding that there are going to be implications of this technology that we may not understand yet. We may not know. Um, both really, really positive and potentially negative. But even in that vein, if you are the technological skeptic, right, um, it still behooves you to understand how this technology works, how this technology works, how it's going to reshape work, um, and how it's going to reshape communities and the world in which your nonprofit organization is serving, just as social media has. Um, so nonprofits cannot afford to fall behind the curve on this, however optimistic or skeptical you are, it's going to reshape a lot of aspects um, of nonprofit work. And it's important not to fall behind that curve. Yeah. The other side of the coin here is that the capacity for these tools to be used for mis and disinformation is incredibly high. And the only solution, because I can't control how these large language models are going to be created by every major tech firm is to, again, get it in the hands of folks that, frankly, are probably listening to this. <laughs> People that are working for the public benefit. Uh, and, we're, and we're ready to help those organizations. So reach out if you're interested or have questions as well. All right, Nick, do we have a feel-good story? We do have a feel-good story. This one comes from KSNV about the Las Vegas Pizza Alliance, a nonprofit that is, quote, slicing out hunger. They are kicking off their Pizza Expo 2023. Um, they are hosting a Pizza Expo tailgate party at Pizza Rock in downtown Las Vegas to kick off their Pizza Expo. Um, the event helps families facing insecurity related to food um, and other uh, basic securities. Um, and over 20 of the Best pizza makers in the city and around the world were there giving samples of their signature pizza slices. Um, so if you want a slice of that action, uh, head on down and uh, have some pizza for a good cause. Uh, just we love creative fundraising opportunities on the podcast. So thought we'd share. Nick, I, uh, I'm curious, what do you think the average number of slices an American eats over the course of a year? Over a year. Oh, gosh. Slices. 50? Oh, my gosh. You are, you're doing pretty well today. Uh, 46 <laughs> slices. Wow. Uh, there you go. That's, that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. A mere 23 pounds of pizza per year. Not enough, in my opinion. Need to up that. We can do better. Uh, a quick shout out to our, our ongoing friend and sponsor at Nonprofitist. If you're looking for a trusted nonprofit consultant for anything ranging from board development to executive transition, fundraising, web dev, ad grants, strategic planning, they are there, including legal at nonprofit.ist, nonprofitist. All right, Nick, I have, well, I got a question and I think you know what's coming. What oh boy. did, what did, what did the nonprofit health center say to the guy who came in with a suspicious-looking mole? <laughs> what did they say? Uh, sir, the the vet is down the hall. 
the veterinarian because it was like a mole, not like a mole in your face, but <laughs> it was like a mole, the animal. Oh, God. You see, folks, the, the more you have to explain a joke, the funnier it is. I know every book says otherwise, but there you have it. All right. Thanks for listening. You know, subscribe, like, comment, or don't. We appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks, George. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to Greg Thomas Music.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 